Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Uh, I'm going to uh, I'm going to be preaching today and uh, next week, and I'm going to. It's just going to be a little mini series, two parts to it. The first part's going to be the enthronement of man, uh, of a man, and then the second part next week is going to be the follow through on that with some uh, kind of a, a basic overview of eschatology next week, and it's going to be entitled The Enthronement of the God-Man. And so that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today, and, and uh, the enthronement of a man. And for the few of you who heard uh, me speak at the global event, I'm going to expand on what I said there. So about half of what you hear is going to be the same as that, but I'm going to take it and I'm going to set it in an eschatological uh, framework, you know, an end times kind of framework, and I'm going to expand on that because I have a little bit more time. I think they gave me two hours or something like that, and uh, I can't remember. Uh, no, no. And uh, yeah, the mice can play. Yeah, exactly. So that's what we're going to. Uh, that's what we're going to do today. So. Uh, before we get started, let's uh, ask the, the Lord to come. And, and you know why we're going to pray? We're going to pray for two reasons. The, the, the first reason is, as, even as we were praying about the, you know, in song about the Holy Spirit, uh, we're going to ask him to speak to our hearts individually and collectively. But the second thing that we're going to do is uh, we're going to use the prayer time as a time of commitment in which we are going to say, Lord, th this is an important time. I'm not going to sleep on this one. Amen? And, uh, and I choose to engage with what you want to say and what you want to teach me uh, this morning. All right? So that's, that's why we're going to pray the way, uh, the way we are. Lord, uh, we thank you for this time of worship. And uh, thank you for that song we, we just, uh, just sang, How Great Is Our God. And Lord, that sets the perspective for everything we're going to say today. Because there's a lot of negative things we have to deal with in this world and we have to look at in this world. And uh, we don't want to be like those who put their heads in the sand and pretend that everything's just fine because you can't use us like that. But at the very same time, wow, we would have despaired unless we had believed we'd see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, as the psalmist said. And so, Lord, we choose to engage with what you have to say to us. Help us to understand what it is that you're trying to uh, get us to see so that, it, that we can align our hearts with you and with your agenda and with what you are doing. And so we choose to engage this morning in Jesus' name, and everybody agreed by saying, all right, the sentence I am a woman trapped in a man's body would have seemed like nonsense to our grandparents' generation. Had a patient uttered such, a, uh, such to a doctor in the mid-20th century, he or she, he would have uh, con concluded, the doctor would have concluded that the patient had a psychiatric disorder which needed to be treated to bring the feelings in line with the physical body, right? By the way, I'm not mocking right now. And so if you're here and you're wondering about, we're going to be talking about the Christian worldview and we're going to talk about a, 
you know, the secular or the humanistic worldview. And if you are here today and you're visiting or whatever, or you're just thinking about these things and you are following a humanistic worldview, I'm not mocking you today. We're just talking about reality and we're talking about truth from a biblical worldview and point of view. Amen? Amen? Yeah. So we love you no matter what you believe. Amen? Yes. But please consider the biblical worldview because there's lots riding on it. Your eternity, your present life. And so anyway, so if somebody had gone to a doctor with that kind of feeling, the doctor would have uh, tried to bring the, uh, the uh, body, uh, uh, you know, the, the feelings in line with the physical body. Is that true or not? That's how it would have been. And, but today, the doctor is more likely to say that the patient's body needs to be brought into alignment with those inner feelings. So now it's reversed. On the day of Ottawa's annual March for Life, let's try something else. The Minister of the, for the Status of Women, Patty Haydu, said, now listen to this very carefully, I'm pro-choice because it saves lives. In other words, you know, that word pro-choice is meant to throw you off. In other words, what we're saying is, I'm for abortion because it saves lives. Did you get that? It sounds like madness to me. Pat Maloney, a pro-life blogger on Run With, you know, entitled Run With Life, reported that last year there were 149 live birth abortions in Canada. Live birth abortions in Canada. When the procedure failed, the babies were simply left to die with no one to even comfort them. 73 million babies are aborted worldwide each year. That's almost two Canadas every year. As Pastor Stuffin said in a chat, the irony is that the left, those that hold to a humanistic worldview, say that the Old Testament is so violent, so we got to get rid of it. That's the irony of it. Who's violent? I just read about the violence. So how did we get here? Well, it all began with a belief, with a belief in a lie in the garden. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, it says, For God knows that when you eat from it... No, no, you're going to help me with this one, because it's on the... Yeah, you, you can see it, so help me with this, all right? Here we go. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There it is. You will be like God. That's the lie that Satan introduced through the serpent to Adam and Eve. Now, we're going to look at this idea, how it took root in the history of humanity, and how, especially in the last couple of years, and why it developed to the point we see today, and what the final outcome of this idea will be. That's what we're going to look at. Those three, those, those three things we'll develop, we'll develop. 
However, don't despair. <laughs> because as I quoted before, Psalm 27, 13, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. We, we will end on a high note, but we will just end on a high note, which will be the lead-in for a whole message of hope next week. Amen? Can, can you hang on till the end of next weekend? All right. So let's begin with the start of a new religion called humanism in the 14th century. Well, that's as far back as we'll go. For thousands of years, mankind or humanity believed in, in a god or gods, some being or beings that were transcendent. That's what they believed, whether they were Christian or, or not, whether it was a Christian or Jewish god or some other god, that's what, that's what humanity believed in. But in the 14th century, a movement called humanism began in Italy. Humanism promoted the idea that man, not God, was at the center of his own universe. Now, what inspired this momentous shift? Well, it was technological and scientific pro progression. Already in the 14th century, there was the inventions of gunpowder and eyeglasses and clocks, improved building techniques which yielded Gothic architecture and medieval castles and windmills and agricultural advances and the printing press and on and on we could go. Already in the 14th century. Previously, the world was viewed as fixed. It was a fixed reality. And huma humanity had to submit to its authority. Do you know what I mean by that? So this is the way it is, and there's nothing you can do with it. We're dealt what we're dealt. And so when, uh, for example, if you went blind or, you, uh, or your crops were poor, you only had one resort for that, and that was to go to who? Exactly. You went to God. Because he was the only one who could control all these things. However, with the advent of uh, technological progress and inventions, uh, the, you know, as, as those things, as challenges were overcome by these inventions and advances, an idea took hold in humanity that the world was simply stuff which could be overcome and remade through human technological mastery. In other words, God wasn't needed after all. Humanism was born. It was a new religion. Man, not God, was now in charge. And it was a rival religion to the Judeo-Christian religion. But this meant, if you were going to invent this new religion at in which man was at the heart rather than God being at the heart, you had to re-explain all of life. Isn't that true? The scriptures explain how life is to be lived based on the fact that God is sovereign and in control. True? That's the Christian or biblical worldview, we call it. 
and it explains life to us. But if you had a humanistic religion, you now had to re-explain everything, and you had to re-explain how life works and how you should live within it in accordance with a view that says man is on the throne or man is at the center of the universe. Does that make sense? And the answer is, yeah. Just say yes, because it'll make me feel so good. Oh, yeah. But this, uh, and so, for this task, humanistic prophets were needed, just like there were theistic and biblical prophets to explain life. They needed humanistic prophets, which we call philosophers. Philosophers. They were needed. They would explain life. So as we look at this next, you'll recognize some of their ideas, or I would call them doctrines, which have taken root in humanity today and have been passed over the centuries down to us and have grown. They've, uh, they've, they've grown their own truth. And you will recognize some of their ideas or doctrines which have taken root and have come into our own culture and they contradict the Bible. Now these philosophers or these, these false prophets, they built their ideas by borrowing from each other. They would take one and then they would try something that didn't work and they would try another one and, and, and slowly they started to, and that's what you're going to see as we look at it. So let's look at it. The humanistic prophets re-explained life. The first one that we'll look at is Jean Rousseau. And the key thing that I want you to remember from what he said is, is that... Uh, you, you ought to trust your heart and be authentic. Do you ever hear that? Do you ever hear that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, all the time. You live, you live saturated in that kind of thinking. But guess what? That already was being stated back in the early 18th or mid-18th century, in the 1700s. He brought it into vogue. He believed that humans are born good. Therefore, he reasoned that our inner voice, if we're good, then the inner voice and feelings must be trustworthy moral guides. And that's why people say things today like, follow your heart, or follow your gut, or your instincts. In 1977, it's sad to say because I like the song, Debbie Boone sang, you light up my life. Yeah, how many of you know that one? Yeah, I know. And, but it includes some unfortunate words in there right towards the end. And it says, it can't be wrong when it feels so... Does that sound like today? Yeah. Follow your heart. Trust your instincts. Why? Because you're born good. And so you can trust it. But the, the biblical worldview says that our heart is deceitful, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, above all things. And so, therefore, we're not to lean on our own understanding because our hearts are deceitful. You can't trust what your heart is always telling you because we've been born in... Yeah, 
We've been corrupted. It's clear that our hearts can be wrong even when it feels so right. The second thing that Rousseau taught was that society corrupts the self by preventing us from acting consistent with our feelings. In other words, if you feel a certain way and there are moral codes like Christianity or uh, those kinds of ideas that say you shouldn't act in accordance with the way you feel, then society is corrupting your good inner self. Do you see what I'm saying? And, uh, and that, that, that's a problem. In other words, then you aren't being authentic. Oh, everybody, uh, young generations, do you, you, hear, you hear about authenticity all the time and being authentic? And being, you know, you shouldn't be inauthentic? Yeah, that's where this comes from. This isn't a new idea. It's an old idea, and it comes from an old religion that has been developing. And um, so to be happy, you have to be authentic. Be true to your... Yeah, you can preach back at me. Be true to yourself. Amen? That's what the religion teaches. Be true to yourself. Be authentic. This is why a person, uh, and by the way, I'm not mocking again. I'm just making a simple statement. I'm gonna, I'm just a factual statement. So don't misunderstand me. This is why a person born male, but who claims to be a woman, is to be celebrated because that is an act of courage and honesty. Do you see that? Whereby the outward action is brought into alignment with the inward feeling. So you celebrate them because they're authentic. Now, there's a problem with that kind of thinking. The biblical worldview points it out. <clears throat> The person who experiences a strong inner urge to harm or kill someone, for example, does that mean then that they are not being authentic and that they are being hypocritical if they don't go and harm or kill that person then? Do you see the problem? Yeah. Teenagers and young adults, do you see the problem? It's a big problem. Uh, in fact, we would say, you shouldn't do what you feel like doing. Amen? Have there ever been times when you felt like doing something that was wrong? You know, that society thinks is wrong? Have you ever felt like stealing? Hello, anybody? Am I the only one? And I did, as a teenager, I stole. I did. But I was being authentic. The rest of you were hypocrites. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? It's a problem. That's called, it, we don't call that being hypocritical. We call that, the scriptures call that self-restraint. Is that true? We all have to practice restraint. Is that true? Galatians, for example, in chapter 5, 
says, um, uh, you brothers were, since you were created to be free, don't indulge your flesh, but rather serve one another, uh, serve one another in love. There's many verses in Scripture that talk about restraint, self-restraint. That's why we can get along in families and in society. Amen? Yeah. So it's not true what this false prophet Rousseau taught. The second thing, and by the way, on all of these, I'm just skimming. We could have entire messages on these, on each of the things that I'm going to say, but we don't have time, obviously. <clears throat> the second one is Karl Marx, 1818 to 1883. And the key thing I want you to remember there is he taught overthrow oppressors in the church and the family. Marx wrote that history can be best explained as a class struggle between oppressors, that's the ruling class, and the oppressed, the working class. So the ones that own the big businesses and, uh, and the oppressed, the working class. He believed that humans were essentially good. There it is again. And that they committed, see some of the, some of the similarities in their thinking, that they committed crimes only because they were oppressed. So remove capitalist oppression and all will live in peace and happiness. To do this, he proposed the abolition of private property. No one would own anything anymore. The state would own everything and then redistribute wealth equally to everyone. This, he said, would end the class struggle, bringing happiness and utopia or heaven on earth. Because he knew that the ruling class would never give up their power and wealth voluntarily, he proposed the need for revolution. And that's exactly what happened, the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia of 1917. It resulted in a bloodbath which killed millions of people. Marx also believed that two institutions gave legitimacy to the economic oppressors, those who owned the big businesses and, and oppressed the working class. And by the way, I'm not saying that there wasn't oppression taking place. In this world, we have all kinds of greed. I'm talking about how they considered the solutions and um, there were two institutions that he believed undergirded these oppressors. One was the church. And he said the church in the, in the Bible, he said uh, that scripture consisted of man-made commands intended to manipulate workers to submit to their masters. So for example, he pointed out to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5 to 7, which says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect. Do you see what he's saying? So he's saying that, see, the scriptures were made, were written by the powerful to, to keep the, the oppressed under submission. Therefore, get rid of the Bible and get rid of the institution of the church. That's what he believed. And the second thing is, get rid of the family, because it was an impediment, because parents passed on their moral and religious ideas and values that were contrary to the state. So the church and family had to be overthrown along with the oppressors. Churches 
in Russia came under state control, as they are in China with 1.4 billion people. And uh, children were taken early from the home and indoctrinated with atheistic Marxist thinking. And do you recognize any of those ideas happening in our culture today, yes or no? That's why we're taking you through this. This is where it comes from. This is, this is old. This comes from a humanistic religion that was started several hundred years ago. And uh, <clears throat> so um, here's the biblical worldview. First of all, God, not the state, is sovereign over the world. And guess who learned that lesson? King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And uh, if you want to read a great passage on how he came to believe in the sovereignty of God, he thought he was God. And God, remember he ate grass and all of that. Do you remember that? Remember that story? And uh, after that, read Daniel 4, 34 to 35, because we don't have time, okay? But read what he said. It's one of the classic passages on the sovereignty of God over the universe, which is exactly contrary to what humanistic thinking says, okay? That's the first thing. That's biblical worldview. Second thing is God created the family, amen? That's the first social unit created on earth, the, the marriage and then the family, long before he created governments. In Genesis, the family even has an honorary place in the Ten Commandments. It says what? Honor your father and mother. I noticed the young people didn't uh, quote that verse. How come? <laughs> but, they, but the parents did. <laughs> All right. I know. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just teasing with you. Third, as for the church, Jesus said he would build his. Whose church is it? Does it belong to man? Is it man-made? No, it is God-made. Jesus said he would build his church. Here's the third person we'll talk a little bit about, Sigmund Freud. And the key thing I want you to remember there is the sexual desires are my identity. He, he taught that back in the 19th century. By the 20th century, the notion of happiness switched from the economic domain, Marxism, you know, everybody will be happy if, if you redistribute wealth, economic happiness, okay? The idea, then everybody will be happy and fulfilled and da 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 that was Marxism. But the idea shifted in the 20th century and Freud came along and he said, no, people will be happy, it's not about the money, it's about the inner self. You got to make the inner self happy. It's not just about your wealth and how you live on the outside. It's how you live on the inside. Inner domain. So the focus changed from a struggle to be free from economic repression to a struggle to be free from inner repression. As we know, happiness is based is a basic human desire. And Freud said, happiness has two sides. Happiness has two sides. Absence of pain and presence of pleasure. Amen. <laughs> That's exactly right. And where was the greatest pleasure to be found in? Sex. 
sexual pursuits. That's what Freud taught. And uh, human flourishing became synonymous with sexual fulfillment, free from any external constraints like moral laws. Now you suddenly see, if that's true, then moral laws in the church are repressive because they're keeping you from enjoying and becoming fulfilled and happy the way you're supposed to be. See that? Freud also believed that this desire existed from infancy, and these beliefs reinforce the idea that our identities are fundamentally defined by our sexual desires. This is where the culture gets the idea, I was born this way. So to disapprove of what I do now means that you disapprove of me because that's who I am. Those who disagree, oh, I wish we could continue there, but those who disagree, the church with its moral laws and the nuclear family, once again are viewed as the oppressors. And that's why today they are being vilified in the press, in social media, in the en entertainment um, industry and so on and so forth. Here's the biblical worldview. The biblical worldview says this. I was born this way is actually true. Correct? You were born that way, however that is. With whatever propensity that you have. We had a daughter that was born to us, and I don't know how old was she in Woodstock. Four? And at age four, she was the most prolific liar I've ever met. <laughs> age four. She learned it from Fran. <laughs> no, she was born that way. It didn't matter what we, what we did. I mean, we taught her. We, you know, we indoctrinated her. You must tell the truth. Do not lie. And finally, we got so desperate, we went to prayer. We would literally cry in prayer because it was that bad. We're born that way. Amen? Absolutely. But this is where the biblical worldview takes a, takes a turn. The Bible teaches that at birth, each person inherited a corrupted soul or spirit, and therefore all of us have sinned and are broken. Amen? all of us, and unable to be who we're supposed to be. The key departure for Rousseau, Marx, and Freud from this Christian understanding is that none believed in God's existence. Therefore, they didn't believe in the fall or that we were made in the image of God and that we're to emulate him. So once you take God out of the picture and you put man on the throne, do you see everything collapses? Everything changes. How you do life, you've got to write a new manifesto. True? There's got to be new belief systems. Therefore, they didn't, uh, and that's what happened. We were just born this way, they said, which isn't good or bad. It's morally neutral. It just is, so go with it. Then there was this man by the name of Antonio Gramsci. And the key things to remember there from the 19th and 20th century, early, early 20th century, he, the key thing I want you to remember from him is he, he said, de deconstruct society from within, okay? Marxism said, 
go and get rid of the ruling class, do it through a bloody revolution. Antonio said, no, do it from within. Now watch this. Just like the Marxists needed an economic revolution to overthrow their oppressors, the sexual revolution was now needed to overthrow the sexual oppressors and free their victims. That's what's been going on since the 1960s. But lessons had been learned from the Marxist revolution, which had resulted in a bloodbath. There had to be a different sort of revolution that wouldn't result in millions and millions and millions and millions of people dying. Amen? So Antonio was a Marxist who was imprisoned by the fascist Mussolini in Italy. And he used his time in prison to write about how Marxism could be advanced in peaceful ways without the bloody revolutions seen in Russia. He taught that Marxism could gain power by capturing the institutions of education, law, media, economics, entertainment, and so on. Does that sound familiar? It required that these cultural revolutionaries would gain positions of power within these existing institutions. Thus, Marxism could be advanced incrementally, step by step, institution by institution, and law by law. This idea was then applied to the sexual revolution, which was promoted by Freud. So this 1960s sexual revolution wasn't merely about expanding the range of sexual activities that would be acceptable, like sex before marriage or adultery or anything like that. The revolution was more about overthrowing sexual codes that said it was wrong in the first place. That's what it was about and is about. And that's key. Well, let's look at the fifth one, George Hegel, a German from the 18th to, uh, century to the beginning of the 20th century. He was teaching early 20th century, or 19th, I'm sorry. He, the key thing I want you to remember there is that humanity is progressing. That's what he said. It's going, so the humanism, the, the religion of humanism is declaring and preaching that it that its philosophy or its doctrine is working and things are getting better. That's what he's preaching. That's what Hegel said. <clears throat> he taught that aided by science and technology, history inevitably progresses positively to improve the human condition. Now, certainly democracy and capitalism created the world's highest standards of living and expanded personal freedom to all, this has created the, but this has created the illusion. I mean, certainly when you look at our grandparents and great-grandparents, I sometimes think about it, I really do. I sometimes talk about it to my friends. And I say, can you imagine what it was like here when they came from Russia? They came on a train. Have you ever, have you ever stopped to think about that? I often think about it. I think about it regularly. And I go, oh my goodness, I can't imagine how difficult that was. No conveniences like we have, you know, nothing. And, 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 and terrible, uh, you know, the, the soil and the climate and whoo. No highways, nice cars and all of that kind of stuff. And it gives the illusion that we have progressed. Amen? 
That's the illusion it gives. And many people, even Christians, believe that things are actually getting better. Really? Biblical worldview says otherwise. We see that in the flood. Things progressed. Regressed is a, is a better way to say it. They say it's progressing. Scripture says it was regressing. It got so bad that God finally came and wiped out humanity other than Noah and his family. When the disciples came to Jesus in Matthew 24, do you remember that? He asked, uh, they asked, so when will these things happen, and what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Do you remember them asking Jesus that question? And he started to list some things, and then he said, these are the beginning of birth pains. So, I don't know a lot about birth pains, so I sat down with my wife and asked her to explain that passage to me. And what she said to me is that they increase in frequency and intensity. Is that true? That's why, I mean, I don't know, but is it true, ladies? Yes. yes. Okay. Uh, that's why Jesus used that analogy. He said things are going to progressively get worse, and it's going to speed up. Does it look like it's doing that today? Sure does. It's a biblical worldview. Jesus said that. And he said in verse uh, 21, he said, then there would be great tribulation unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. He said it's going to regress or get worse, whichever way you want to put it, okay? <laughs> That's true. That's a biblical worldview. And uh, it's, what's interesting is that just 100, 100 years after Hegel declared that humanity was progressing, his theory was shattered when two world wars claimed 115 million lives, including Hitler's horrific genocidal gassing of 6 million Jews. China's Mao, Chairman Mao, killed tens of millions right up to his death in 1976, and the UN reports that today there are 21 million people in some form of slavery through human trafficking. It's a $150 billion per year industry. Another 4 million are victims of sex trafficking, and 1 million of those today are children. Children. Just stop and think about it. Children. 10,000 in the U.S. today, according to U.S. Today, and they're forced, the, uh, talking about the ones in, in the U.S., they're forced to have sex with men up to 30 times per week. It's getting better? Seriously? That's a false prophet. Hegel and his whole bunch were false prophets. And if you are buying into some of these ideas, know where it comes from. This is rooted back in history, and it comes from humanism, which replaced God and said, God is out. You can't mix the thinkings of humanism with Christianity. Amen? The two are are a paradox. 
They don't mix. They lead to different... If, if you start with God, you end up one place. If you start with man, you end up in another place. You can't mix the two. That's why we have the scriptures. Different prophets wrote about how you live under God. True? Yep. And Friedrich Nietzsche, this is the last one I'll mention here, he said, overthrow the moral codes. All these ideas, the ones that I mentioned, and there's many more, but were based on the one belief that God is dead and that man is master of his own fate, he is his own God. But it was Nietzsche who pressed this to its logical conclusion. Because many philosophers, many of these false prophets, these philosophers, they would teach one thing, God is dead, man is on the throne, but they would live by the Christian values because the Christian values were actually better. And so Nietzsche came along and said, and he mocked them. I wish I had time to read some of to you what he said. He mocked them openly in his writings, and he said, if you don't believe there's a God, then act like it. Get rid of the Christian moral codes and the laws. Get rid of them. And that's why there's been this concerted effort since then of followers of Nietzsche to overthrow it. But of course, it, it's a big problem. If there's no objective truth or moral law outside of us, then there is no right and wrong. Is that true? Young people, is that true? If there's no God, then there's no moral law outside of us. Then who determines what's right and what's wrong? What's right for me is right for me, and what's right for you is right for you, and you've, you're left with nothing but chaos. Is that true? You can't have order that way. So, guess what happens then? The only way you can settle it then is this. Might is right. Is that true? Yes. Then the strongest determines what's right over the weakest. That's what happens. And that's exactly what happened, as we'll see next, the counterfeit enthronement of man. Hitler, borrowing from evolutionary science theories, argued in Mein Kampf that it was good that the stronger dominates and eliminates the weaker because otherwise nature would be prevented from evolving to a superman race, which Nietzsche had written about. That was his, that was his favorite philosopher. And so might became right. Do you see the problem? By the way, are you starting to look? Are you constantly thinking about how this is playing out in our culture today? Slowly? So to win over Christianized Germany, Hitler invoked God in his earliest speeches to gain power. But then he edited the Bible to fit his Nazi beliefs. There were Nazi-era Bibles, but this is what they looked like. They removed the Old Testament. That's the first thing. Watch out when people remove or diminish the Old Testament. Watch out. They edited the Gospels to purge references to Jesus' Jewish, Jewishness and his fulfillment and Jesus' fulfillment of the Hebrew covenants. They completely rewrote the, the Scriptures. Hitler youth were taught to worship the Führer 
and were taught prayers that resembled the Lord's Prayer but were addressed to the Fuhrer, like this. Adolf Hitler, you are our great Fuhrer. Thy name makes the enemy tremble. The Third Reich comes, thy will alone is law upon the earth. Let us daily hear thy voice and order us by thy leadership. For we will obey to the end, and even with our lives, we praise thee, Heil Hitler." What a mockery. Amen? It's the enthronement of a man, and his will was supreme. Totalitarianism, that's what it was. Not authoritarianism, but totalitarianism, which means in authoritarianism, you have a dictatorship. They, they control your political actions, your actions. But in totalitarianism, they control your thoughts and your emotions as well. Now watch that. Totalitarianism isn't dead. People say, oh, Nazism is gone, you know, and the Berlin Wall came down, and, you know, when Ronald Reagan said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall, and we all cheered in 1989, amen? And I thought it was over. Yes, it's not over. 1.4 billion are enslaved by Xi Jinping in China, and they have surveillance technology now that controls their every move that would have made Stalin and Hitler salvatate. And Kim Jong-un of North Korea. Hundreds of millions more live in strict Islamic totalitarian states. 360 million Christians worldwide are being persecuted right now. And by the way, if you're getting despaired, say that verse again, if you're going to despair. Remember, we're getting to a high note, okay? Can you hang on till then? We're just looking at reality, amen? We're trying to understand what's going on around us. And all next week is going to be positive. <laughs> Hallelujah. So, there. So just hang on. And now a softer totalitarianism, for now, is taking root in the West. In 2015, things really changed. The state of Indiana passed a religious freedom bill to protect businesses who were sued for anti-gay discrimination. A powerful coalition of corporate leaders threatened economic retaliation against the state if it didn't reverse its course. So the state reversed its course. Can you imagine that? Increasingly, if you don't agree with the agendas, like the LGBTQ agenda, you can't get certain university positions in North America, and you can lose your job in corporations. Our children are being indoctrinated and sexualized. Bill C-11 was just passed this winter here in Canada, April, giving government control to algorithms that dictate what Canadians can see online. Can you imagine that? They're going to control your information? Seriously? That's totalitarianism. In 2022, last year, a Texas school district pulled the Bible from their library shelves, and it was banned from a Utah primary school recently. It'll increase. We live in a cancel culture. Freedom of speech and freedom of religion are the victims. The Bible says, 
You say, where is this all headed? I'm glad you asked that. The Bible says it will culminate in the enthronement of a man again, officially proclaiming himself to be God, kind of like a Hitler, only worse. Paul said, that day will not come, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, and that's in verse 1. I've memorized that whole section as is Pastor Stephan. Until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple doing what? Proclaiming himself to be God. But unlike Hitler, this Antichrist and his empire will rule the entire world. It, John says in Revelation 13, was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them, and it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. He too will demand worship and his rule. In fact, I memorized um, Revelation chapter 14, 9 to 12, and it talks about it says, the third angel uh, followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and takes his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury and so on and so forth. But you can see what's going to happen. Now, what's my point in saying all this? The whole world has fallen apart? Well, yeah, there is a sense, but guess why? God is demonstrating for all eternity what happens when man is enthroned on is put on the throne. He's, he's allowing human, the humanistic religion to run its course and show humanity for the remainder of eternity what happens with humanism, a false religion. Amen? Amen. And so you don't want to get caught in that religion. Amen? It's a false religion. It's a dead end. It's a, it's a religion of death. It's a culture of death. No wonder, because who's behind it? Satan. Satan, who started the lie in the first place. You will be like God. Amen? No wonder. And God is allowing it to run its course and for all eternity. We'll see what happens. But this is what I want to say, and I'm jumping around. I, I don't even know where I am hardly anymore. But <laughs> there is a millennium coming very shortly. Amen? And guess who's ruling in the millennium for 1,000 years? Jesus. The God-man is going to rule. And there's going to be justice, and there's going to be righteousness, and there's going to be peace. And do you know what else the prophets say? We're going to look at it a little bit more next week. But it says, the knowledge of the Lord will, will fill the earth. It will be popular for you to take your Bible wherever you go. Go to the grocery store. Go wherever you want. you got your Bible. The nutcase will be the one who doesn't have a Bible. <laughs> right? And listen, uh, by the way, if you don't believe in the Bible, I'm not, I didn't mean to mock you. That, uh, that's not what I, my intent is. My point is, it's going to be popular to follow the Lord. He's going to rule from a throne. Amen? Amen? Yeah. It's actually going to happen. 
We're going to talk about that next week. And for 1,000 years, they're going to tie up Satan, put him in an abyss, and then he's going to be let loose. But we'll talk about that next week. And then he'll be let, uh, and, and during that time, people will see what it's like when Jesus rules on the throne for mankind, amen? And for all eternity, they, people will know how, how, how that works. So do you see the contrast between humanism and Christianity or theism, theism and humanism? It's very, very different. Two very different outcomes. It's going to be filled with joy and rapture, and it's, it's just going to be amazing. So here, how, how do we end? Because i got to stop. Avoid the twin temptations of pessimism and optimism. Pessimism, pessimism will lead to despair. Memorize, you know, if you're going to despair, memorize Psalm 27, 13. And get your head in the book, amen? Get your head in the book. Find out what's going to happen. I'll show you what else to do. Optimism will make you think that everything will return to normal. It won't. It won't. This is the natural outworking of what's been built all along. It's not just going to go away. And the Bible, uh, this has been rooted for a long time, and the Bible prophesies this. So don't be pessimistic or optimistic, but be what? Realistic. Well, realistic is one. That's what I used to say, so that's a very good answer. I, actually, that makes it a really good answer. No. <laughs> Hopeful. Amen. Be what? Hopeful. Hopeful and what? And what the scriptures tell us is coming. And you know why we can trust what the uh, scriptures tell us is coming? Because a lot of what the Old Testament said would happen with the coming of Jesus, you know, in his death on the cross, et cetera, et cetera. Did it happen or didn't it happen historically? Yeah, historically. Even non-Christians say it happened historically. And if that happened historically and the prophets said it would happen, and it did happen, then we can count on it, and we can believe that what else it said, that he would come back a second time, and by the way, he said he would come back a second time too, then that will happen too. Amen? Holy smokes. We got a lot to, be, to have hope for, right? We should be the most hope-filled people in the world. Amen? Not naive, stupid optimism, but informed biblical hope. Amen? Oh, yes. Okay. So anyway, here's what it says. Uh, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together. i got to stop. Let us break their chains, throw off their shackles. What's the solution to evil? The answer is the installation of a king. And he says in Psalm 2, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. He'll bind up Satan and do all these things. So, first thing, be hopeful. Second thing, get into a small group. I'm serious. Pray, study the word, memorize together. Uh, disciple. Um, because you can't stand strong. Young people, listen to me, and everyone here. You will not stand against what's coming by yourself. That's like taking a coal out of a fire and setting it separate. 
it dies out. Amen? Amen. Don't do it. Scripture teaches us. And the third thing is, pray Scripture about the coming king and kingdom. And that's how we're going to end. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray Scripture to you right now. And maybe you will want to take, I did this <clears throat> yesterday out of Psalm 2. Today I did it out of the Lord's Prayer. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray Scripture for you today. And in doing that, I will be, it'll be a real prayer, but I will also model for you how you can do that because it'll change your heart and your mind and your emotions in the middle, and you won't despair. Amen? Okay, so if you want to, you can just put your hands out, and I'm going to pray Psalm 2. I've got it memorized, but I'm going to, I'm going to use my Bible, okay? Is that okay? Lord, why do the nations rage? They just rage against you all the time, and the people's plot in vain. They've been doing this for hundreds of years. They threw you off the throne, and they said, we will be God, not you. We will be masters of our own fate and captains of our own ship. Lord, Lord, why do they do this? The kings rise up against you, Lord. They plot against you and they say things like, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. All those moral guides and laws and Bibles. We don't want them anymore. We know what we're doing. We don't need God. Lord, it breaks our hearts. And it's ripping our world apart. And it's destroying our country. It's destroying our institutions. It's destroying our kids when we send them off to school who are being sexualized and, and indoctrinated against you. Lord, we call out to you. Lord, your word says, the one enthroned, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. And oh Lord, we're so glad that you are on your throne and you haven't been dethroned even though humanity has tried to dethrone you. Lord, we're so grateful that you are still sitting on your throne and that you laugh because it's nothing to you. It's like nothing. In fact, Lord, it says you scoff at them and you rebuke them in your anger and terrify them in your wrath. And we've seen so many examples of it in history, in, the, in biblical history and other history, how you've stopped them with a rebuke from your anger and, and with your wrath. And you say, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Lord, there's the solution right there. Lord, we've had a lot of bad leaders through the centuries, through the millennia. But we need the God-man king. We need you. 
And we thank you for the promise that you're going to install him on Zion, Mount Zion, your holy hill. We look forward to that day. Oh, that gives us hope. That gives us hope. And you say, and you say to him, you will break them with a rod of iron. You, you will break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like pottery, the, these kings, these evil rulers, some of which we've mentioned. Thank you, Lord, that you're going to crush it for the oppressed, for the poor, the downtrodden. And thank you that you're going to put an end to all this nonsense once and for all. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Oh, that gives me such hope. That gives us hope. Thank you for your word that prophesies. Thank you, Lord, that these are true prophets. They're not like these false prophets we just talked about. Thank you. Lord, thank you for the warning. Kings, be wise. Be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Be warned. Serve the Lord with fear, with the fear of the Lord. Lord, we want to serve you with the fear of the Lord. We thank you. We thank you that we can serve you <clears throat> and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, you say to the rulers of the earth. And we say to our governments, Lord, draw them to yourself that they would kiss the sun lest he be angry with you, them and they be overthrown in his anger. But Lord, I'm excited about one thing, the last line. Blessed are all those who take refuge in you, the King of kings and Lord of lords and Lord Jesus. Right now, if there's anybody in this auditorium that has not taken refuge in you, we pray, I ask right now that they would say yes to Jesus right now. And if you're sitting here and he's speaking to you on the inside, say yes to Jesus because he is coming back to rule on this earth and to bring peace and justice and righteousness once and for all. And we pray all this in God's people said, amen and amen.